In his memoir, My Dark Places, James Elroy writes about how he was haunted by the memory of his mother. She was murdered in 1958, when he was 10. 35 years later, he tried to track down her murderer. His mother was last seen in El Monte, California, with man Elroy calls the Swarthy Man, and with a blonde woman. Elroy hired a private investigator. He also tried to scare up some leads by having two papers do stories about the murder and having the TV shows Day One and Unsolved Mysteries do segments. All of them but Day One gave out a phone number for people to call with tips and leads. As the phone calls came in, Elroy found out he wasn't the only one who was haunted. This is from his memoir. A man from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma called. He said the swarthy man looked like a guy named Bob Soans. Bob murdered his wife, Sherry, and committed suicide. He was late 58. The crime occurred in North Hollywood. A man from Centralia, Washington called. He said his father was a swarthy man. His father was 6'6 and weighed 240 pounds. I should say this does not match the description of the real swarthy man. His father carried a gun and lots of ammunition. A man from Savage, Minnesota called. He said the swarthy man looked like his father. His father lived in El Monte back then. His father was abusive. His father served prison time. His father was a gambler and a skirt chaser. A man from Rochester, New York called. He said his grandfather was a swarthy man. Gramps lived in a nursing home. The man supplied the address and phone number. A woman from Sacramento, California called. She said the swarthy man looked like a local doctor. The doctor lived with his mother. The doctor hated women. The doctor was a vegetarian. A woman from Lakeport, California called. She said the swarthy man looked like her ex-husband. Her ex chased women. She didn't know where he was now. A woman from Covina, California called. She said her sister was raped and strangled in El Monte. It happened in 1992. A woman from Paso Robles, California called. She said the swarthy man looked familiar. She met a man like that in 1957. He wanted sex. She said no. He said he wanted to kill her. He lived in a lumber then. A woman from Benwood, West Virginia called. She said a man stalked her and her brother in Los Angeles. She was six years old. The man had dark hair and good teeth. He drove a truck. He took off her clothes, fondled her, and kissed her. She saw him on a TV game show several years later. Might have been the Groucho Marx show. Elroy's list of callers goes on for pages. Why don't more adults celebrate Halloween? Why don't adults go to horror movies in the same numbers that teenagers do? I believe it's because so many of us, we're already haunted. Haunted by people who've harmed us, haunted by people we fear, haunted by people we've harmed, haunted by people who've gone. Well, from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, we choose some theme. We bring you a variety of stories on that theme. Today's program, haunted. Haunted not by ghosts or phantoms, but by other people, by reality. Act one, hearing voices. The girl gets a tape recorder for Christmas, loves to record her parents, but only when they fight. Her parents die, the tapes survive. Act two, why a Jewish family in New York embraces a Holocaust survivor as a member of their family without much evidence that he really is. Act three, ashes. David Sedaris says, I love you to his mother, and she tells him that she's going to pretend that she did not hear him say it. The story of how he and his family reacted when she got lung cancer. Act 4. Ghost story. Heather Woodbury demonstrates that there is no rock and roll heaven. Stay with us. Act 1. 
hearing voices. Lynette Nyman is a reporter for Alabama Public Radio and uses a tape recorder in her regular job. But this story is about recording she made as a kid, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. The tapes come from my taping, my family. Um, I taped my family. I taped, uh, but see, I didn't tape the happy moments. I taped all the trying moments. Why? (sighs) Maybe my own intrigue. I don't know. I didn't do it. I didn't either. Well, I guess you did if you lifted the door up and got it in, didn't you? The person that makes the mess cleans it, don't they? I don't clean your goddamn oven. Hey, I didn't make the mess. Hell no, you haven't come for days. Why did you just say that? Well, there's old motor mouth going. Well, I'm my motor mouth, but I want to know why you made that statement. I'm trying to get this place in condition for you to paint. Um, at one point in the recordings, it, somebody is painting. Is that what's happening? <laughs> right. And um, and do you remember this? Do you do you remember this actually happening? I do. I do. And and what? Where where are we in the house? What room are we in? You're actually in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. We're in the kitchen, and this is. This is now. See, this is where my mom has finally caught on to this whole thing in my taping, and this was when I fell into her trap. And she had said to me, Lynette, go get the tape recorder. You mean she'd start a fight and then she'd say, go get the tape recorder? Yes. What do you think was going on? <laughs> I mean, do you, do you think that she's just, um, that, that she's just uh, getting into a little tiff with him and she's just like, well, I'll show him. <laughs> Not only am I going to have this fight, but like I'm going to embarrass him too <laughs> on tape. But the funny thing, though, is that if she were going to do that, why didn't she ever play it t- for anybody? She never did. And maybe she, maybe she did think that. Maybe she thought, okay, you know, yeah. Like she said in the tape, she said, well, I've got witnesses here. And witnesses for what? Oh. Oh, now start a fight. Gee, I've got a lot of things that I've got witnesses here, what you've said. Dial the wrong number on the paramedics if I collapse. Is that what you plan to do? <laughs> you want to argue? No, that wasn't a funny statement, that one. I never thought that would I'd trust for anybody. That's your, that's your father for your mom, see? Is this what the regular everyday relationship was like, or, or, or was this uh, different than, than the way they were normally? I think it was like it was every everyday life. Oh, really? As far as I remember, yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was really these highs and lows. Dad could have had this done this morning. Well, he got up. Why didn't you get this taken care of this morning? I had company. Who? Crazy. Oh. Why would that have helped you that? Rams is playing in Chicago, and you made me miss the game. Right now. What if the Angels is playing at the Angel Stadium? They're going to play every week and every every day of your life. That's what you've been saying for the last 27 years, Bill. Our home has to have maintenance and repair done to it. 
I was wondering if when you hear this, if she sounds harsh to you. Yeah. She does. She does. Yeah. She sounds really harsh. And it, it kind of hurts. Because I, I she talked to me like that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let me play you a, a little snippet here. Okay. You're sick. You know that, don't you? Hey, nobody can put up with all your yelling and screaming. I'm one of the sweetest girls that ever hey, walked. Hey, walk oh, around. Oh, God. You get, if I died and you had a guy in here, he'd leave within a week. How much you want to bet? Start barking at him. How much you want to bet? Now you were laughing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> what are you hearing? Um, I guess my father's humor. To me, it's funny. Which part is the joke? He's saying like nobody can put up with your screaming. Like, which is the joke part? Uh, my father was uh, kind of just going along, and she was the one in control, and she always was in control, and his response was to kind of just joke. You know, I ain't as young as I used to crawling around. I injured my knee. What knee did you hurt? My weaning. What? Your what? <laughs> Your what, Bill? My knee. Weaning. <laughs> you are sick, aren't you? Who you talk to, your little girls? Is that the way you talk to your little girls? No. Now, after he died, he died first, right? Yeah. She kept the tapes after he died. Um, actually, I found them. I remember it, and I found them, and I listened to them, and then I was the only one at home then, and I played them for her. We brought it out and put the tapes in, and we listened, and we'd sit around the, the kitchen table, just the two of us, and... She'd cry, and I'd cry. And and what do you think she was hearing when she would hear these tapes, often of her, you know, berating him and badgering him? I think she heard her love. That's what I think. Wow. Yeah. And, and if anything, if she didn't hear her love, then she was just hearing him, and that was enough, and that was everything to her. And she she was dedicated to him for for 35 years. When I look at some of her letters that she wrote to me while I was overseas for a couple of years, it was all about, gosh, if only your father were here, I wouldn't be so lonely. And I think that those tapes were a reminder. Do you like your home, Bill? No. Not at all? Yeah, a little bit. I like a You want to admire my home or, or, or run me down like a Bob's wife? Don't put me down, Bill. Do you think that she ever listened to the tapes and thought, God, I should have been sweeter to him? You know, I should have been sweeter. No, no, no. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it was totally normal and natural for her to be like that. Yeah. And... She never saw anything she ever did as being wrong, ever. Never for a moment. Remember that? I didn't do it. Why well, didn't do it? You didn't do it. No, I didn't do it. You come out here, so where's that lazy son of a bitch at? Well, I'm working my goddamn ass off. That's where I've been. Yeah, I'm sure your ass looks worked off.
one of the things that's so odd about these tapes is, is that they actually, your parents actually discuss a lot what will happen after they die and, and who will get what. <laughs> I know. And I was sitting there going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys will get your will changed. You changing your will right away? Yeah. I don't want to leave anybody. Might leave it to the good shepherd. Your household furniture is too? No. All I want is the TV. Just kill everyone the TV. I want the TV and the dining room and the uh, furniture uh, and Who is it who says when they're talking about that somebody pipes up like, I'll get the TV, I get the house? Um, my sister says I get the television and I say I get the house. Mm-hmm. How'd it work out? <laughs> um... Well, in my tapes, everything came true. Really? For the most part. List all the things yeah. that came true. Um, my sister got the television. The house actually went into the trust and was put up for sale. And uh, my brother was cut out of the will. Wait, is that actually in the tape that somebody says, you're going to get cut out of the will? Yeah. My mother jokes in the tape that she wouldn't remarry, and she didn't remarry. She had a boyfriend later on. She, she says I'd have a boyfriend, right? She says, yeah. I'm not going to be married. I'll just see somebody. Right. Right. One's enough for me, baby. I'll never go through it again. <clears throat> They'll never have to worry. Mother might have a boyfriend bring over to their see him, but I won't have a stepfather for him to look at. Or just throw a drink in his face. Pardon? No. Who'd you just cuss? I can't hear you. S.O.B. Who'd you cuss? Show you obviously bring it home. He's getting jealous. <laughs> you wouldn't be jealous after you're gone, would you? Yeah. No, I'd be in the right hand inside of Jesus. Let me ask you about about how you all are acting, how the kids are acting in these recordings. I'm gonna play you another little snippet. <laughs> that's your that's your father for your mom, see? Oh, well, you know damn well, I'd run you all the way to, down to the police station. I mean, to the restaurant. I'd throw you in the back of that new truck. <laughs> and Lee, were they? Wouldn't it be funny if we hit a bump and fell out? We'd just like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, get there and say, where'd you go? Mom's crying. <laughs> So on the tapes, uh, you guys are laughing, the kids are laughing, and then at one point you, you say, Mom's crying. What What is happening? I I think she was hurt. <laughs> she she finally felt some hurt yeah. there. And uh, that's where I stop and I think, oh, gosh. I was just so stupid. And, and I was caught up in it, too. And, and what shouldn't have been funny at all was was funny to me then and it, and and why i don't know i don't and maybe it's just again you know we're just coping we're just trying to get along you know do you view yourself as haunted by this time and buy these tapes. Yeah, I guess I do. Um, I feel like I can't get rid of them. 
and I and I totally want to be away from them completely. But um, my thought these last few days was that I thought to myself, well, you know, okay, after I do this interview, this is it. I'm getting rid of these tapes. I am going to free myself from these things for forever. But you know, I won't. They're going to go right back into the box. <laughs> so. <laughs> Hearing these tapes, I've really thought a lot about, um, you know, what survives of a person. And, um, you know, we don't get to choose what survives of us. Right. Do you think if your dad had a choice about the matter, if he would want you to still have these tapes? Hmm. I would say no. I would say he would say, get rid of them. He would say, life was pretty good. And sure, there were rough moments. Maybe quite a few of them. But overall, uh, things have turned out pretty well. And he would say the tapes were, no, <laughs> not good to keep. Would you tape around the house? Would you ever tape in your personal life? No. You don't, you don't have recordings or videotapes of you and your husband? No. Absolutely not. Because of this? I think so. Lynette Nyman in Alabama. stars when it gets dark Every little thing I do reminds me of you Act 2 This is the story of a boy who was thrown into the concentration camps when he was three lost his parents and although he survived the war he was so young when it ended that he couldn't remember his parents and wasn't sure of his own last name He was adopted by a Swiss family raised in Switzerland His family gave him a German name he was haunted by the past. When he saw a picture of William Tell in school, he thought it was an SS officer shooting a little kid. The apple on the kid's head just made it extra cruel. In his 40s, he started to search for clues about who he was. He thought his real name might be Benjamin Wilkomirsky from Riga. Last year, he published a book about his search called Fragments. In New York, writer Blake Geskin and his mother got their hands on the book. Turns out that Wilkomirsky is a pretty unusual name. All the Wilkomirskys seem to descend from one town in Lithuania called Wilkomir. Some Wilkomirskis came to America, changed their name to Wilbur, married into other names. Blake and his mother are Wilbers, descended from Wilkomirskis. When Benjamin Wilkomirski came to the States on a speaking tour, sponsored by the Holocaust Museum, they got together with him to figure out the past. It's the Sunday afternoon before Rosh Hashanah, the holiday marking the Jewish New Year, and my parents' apartment is full of Wilbers. It's mostly the from side of the family, the religious side. The men wear yarmulkes, the women long sleeves. <laughs> Benjamin Wilkomirski arrived a half hour late with his wife and his handlers from the Holocaust Museum. He didn't look like a Wilbur to me, 
But then again, he didn't look like anyone I'd ever met before. He was wearing a yellow shirt, his light brown hair was styled into a curly, puffy jufro, and he had extra long sideburns that didn't quite meet at his chin. The hairdo and the paisley scarf knotted around his neck tagged him as bohemian. He reeked of stale cigarettes. There's a big turnout. Binyamin brought the Wilbers together in a way tradition and ritual have failed to do. The religious and secular sides of my family have very little contact. Bar mitzvahs and weddings are too expensive to invite everyone, funerals too sudden for everyone to drive or fly in, and the American-style family reunion, with printed t-shirts and picnic coolers and tubs of macaroni salad, is simply unthinkable. But an audience with a Holocaust survivor, who is both a family mystery and a minor celebrity, is well worth the hassle of finding a parking spot in Manhattan on a Sunday afternoon. At first, nobody knew what to do. Binyamin seemed affable, but also tired and a bit bewildered. After everyone introduced themselves, a couple of Wilbers approached him. They were carrying Ziploc bags, and in the bags were copies of Binyamin's book. They asked him for autographs. I felt embarrassed and worried about what Binyamin thought of us, but he signed their books as he would for any stranger. My relatives thanked him and sealed the books back in the Ziploc bags things had started on the wrong foot. My mother decided to intervene. She sat Binyamin down next to my Aunt Miriam. Miriam, who is wearing a smart purple suit and a lavender and white turban, is the matriarch of the Orthodox wing of the family. She and her two brothers are the only living Wilbers who were born in Riga, where Binyamin thinks he came from. Miriam arrived in America in 1929, when she was 18 years old. This is already after the war. My mother, two brothers and me, and that's, that's my husband. At a small folding table, Miriam flips the pages of her tattered photo album, a high school graduation gift from her teachers back in Riga. My mother and I are hoping that one of the photographs will jog Binyamin's memory, like a mugshot. Binyamin's memory is patchy, but Miriam remembers the past. She is in her late 80s, old enough to remember the Jewish refugees who fled to Riga during the First World War. Every so often, somebody came and killed. The streets you was full with dead people. I remember. Listen, that's life, what can you do? All right, going back here. Oh, here is the picture what, what we think, the Abram. This Abram, this the uncle. Avram, Miriam's uncle, was the only Wilkomirsky brother who remained in Riga. He is the number one candidate for missing link between Binyamin and the Wilbers. Avram could be Binyamin's uncle, or maybe even his father. Miriam is pretty sure, however, that Avram had only one son. His picture's in the scrapbook. That boy would have been ten years older than Binyamin. On the other hand, it's possible that the family in America might not have known about other children because it was difficult to communicate with Riga in the late 30s. So who of your family finally remained in Riga during the war? During the war, that's Abraham. Just Abraham and his family? Abraham's children, that's... You remember their names now? No, I never heard. The more I learn about Binyamin, 
the less I believe we're related. Binyamin was separated from his family when he was two or three years old. He doesn't know exactly how old he was because he doesn't know when he was born, or where he was born, or even what his real name is. The only way he knows anything about who he is is that on his way from Auschwitz to an orphanage after the war ended, a woman saw him and told him he was Binyamin Wilkomirski from Riga. Binyamin tells me that recently, when he visited Riga, he stood on the spot in the ghetto where he remembers the Nazis murdered his father, or maybe it was his uncle. He's not sure. I believe Binyamin when he says he remembers, but part of me thinks he's been looking for the place where his memory happened for so long, and he's read so much about Riga that he subconsciously willed himself into finding it. For that matter, I'm not fully convinced that half a century later. He can honestly remember what some lady told him his name was, or if he does remember correctly, that she even knew his real name to begin with. One of the ironies of this situation is that Benjamin has invested years of his life in finding out who he is, and he still doesn't know. But he has learned a lot about who we are. He knows all about the Wilkomirskis, where they lived, and where they came from. Binyamin has found other Wilkomirskis in Poland and Lithuania. In a register from the Vilna ghetto, Binyamin found a Sonia Wilkomirski. He asks if we've ever heard of Sonia, if she's a relative. Miriam says no, firmly, but everyone else in the room is looking for a way to make the answer yes. Yeah, maybe like a nickname. Sonia. 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 All through the afternoon. People keep saying Binyamin has the Wilbur face. They say he looks like Miriam's brother Jaime, that he looks a little like my cousin Stephen, that he looks like me. Everyone has their theory. Among things one doesn't normally look at that I do is the shape of the nostrils. That's my mother. She's an amateur sculptor. Because they're very distinctive. They're similar, but not that close.、Um, the overall look, yes. I, I do think there is a resemblance. Sitting in my parents' living room, Binyamin seems oddly uninterested in what is potentially his long-lost family. His attention to Miriam's photo album comes and goes, and he doesn't ask any questions about us. I'm not sure why he's so detached. It could be fatigue or shyness, or maybe his wariness of getting entangled with us. In the end, Binyamin tells me he's sure we're family, though he isn't too concerned about where he fits on the Wilbur family tree. All the Wilkomirskis are some somehow connected. I'm, I'm absolutely sure, but maybe you have to go、uh, far back. But you, you see, at the end, the human feelings are much more、uh, important. And、then to know are you related in the second or third or fourth generation back or, or so. After Binyamin and the Wilbers left my parents' house, there were five of us left: me, my mother and father, my mother's cousin Susan, and her husband. We talked about why so many Wilbers had showed up and why they seemed so interested in Binyamin. On one level, the Wilbers were seeking the same thing Binyamin was—a key to the past. 
For most American families, anything that happened before the boat landed is a blur. The Wilbers are an American invention, and Binyamin, if he is one of us, can show the Wilbers what we were before we got to Ellis Island. Susan flew in from Southern California just to meet Binyamin. She said that knowing he was a member of the family would give her, as she put it, a sense of roots. One person who doesn't need a sense of roots is Miriam, with her memories of Riga, her religious rituals, and her 35 great-grandchildren. Perhaps that was why she seemed the most skeptical that Binyamin Wolkomirsky was one of us. Blake Eskin's story of Benjamin Wilkomirski continues. Also a story from David Sedaris, that's all in a minute, from Public Radio International, when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, haunted, not by the supernatural, but by other people and reality and the past. We're in the middle of Blake Eskin's account of a man who may be a long-lost relative of his, or it might not be. The next day, Binyamin was the guest of honor at a $150 a plate luncheon at the Carlisle, a ritzy hotel on the Upper East Side that John F. Kennedy used to use as a sex pad. The Holocaust Museum comped our family an entire table, and ten Wilbers showed up. This was a different bunch of Wilbers than at my parents' house the day before. No Orthodox Wilbers came. The food wasn't kosher enough. These Wilbers were on the assimilated end of the spectrum. People I know pretty well. How are you doing, Mom? Oh, sorry. My mask okay. I'll talk to you in a minute. I can't remember the last time like everybody got together in Manhattan. It was probably at your or your bar mitzvah or Deborah's bat mitzvah. Probably Deborah's bat mitzvah. There's a cocktail hour before lunch. Some of my relatives haven't even met Binyamin yet but they're already willing to accept him into the family. I mean, whether or not he is related, it somehow seems immaterial. This is... A contemporary. A contemporary. A cousin, let's say. I mean, that's the way I feel about it. And if he's not a cousin, we make him a cousin. (laughs) Everyone is willing to embrace Binyamin as a family member without any proof. And all of them are feeling a newfound closeness to the Holocaust. They all say, it could have been me. After an asparagus appetizer and a salmon entree, the MC of the luncheon, a major donor to the Holocaust Museum, gets up and introduces Binyamin. 
he doesn't need any proof either. It is my pleasure to welcome you today to today's very special luncheon. Uh, before I continue, I'd like to acknowledge just a couple people in the room. Uh, our author, Mr. Will Komersky's family is all here, and they're sitting at table 11. It bothers me that we are introduced as family without any qualification. I start to get upset. I won't fudge my family history for a lousy three-course lunch, but my mother calms me down. If it helps the Holocaust Museum to call us his newly discovered family, that's fine with me. So you don't feel like we need to get up and correct the record? Absolutely not. I don't. I think it's helpful to the museum and possibly to Binyamin to say his family is here and to tell a story that we discovered each other. Over the next week, we get to know Binyamin and his wife, Farina, a little better. My parents take them for a dim sum breakfast in Chinatown and a walk through lower Manhattan. Binyamin and Farina invite me to dinner. We have a good time. The hesitation and awkwardness of our first meeting is gone. After dinner, Verena goes to their room, and Binyamin and I sit down in the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria. You've helped us learn a lot about our family, and I, I mean, thank you for that. <laughs> of course, I, <laughs> I'm very happy that uh, your reaction was so, so positive, and when I got the first letter by Eden, I, I was, you can't imagine how excited I was. I really <laughs> was jumping <laughs> from uh, excitement. I asked Binyamin if he has considered taking a DNA test with us to determine if we're really family. Binyamin says he's not interested. He says that if we're distant relatives, the test might not tell us anything. And then he tells me a story about the man he calls Father Yaakov. A woman who saw Binyamin's picture on television called him up to say that he looked exactly like her nephew who she thought had died in the Holocaust. She said the father of this boy had survived and was living in Israel. Binyamin called the man in Israel and discovered that they had some memories in common. They decided to take a DNA test. It took about four weeks for the test results to arrive. For me it was very strange. I realized suddenly that during all the last decades I never thought that I had a father. I was always completely fixed on the idea that I must try to somehow to recreate the picture of the woman in my Danik. People told me, that's your mother. I was always thinking of, of that. And in a way that blocked me completely. I never thought about a father. A week before the test results arrive, this man calls Binyamin. He said... He has still a father's love towards his son. He could never live. He has still this to give. And I'm looking for somebody like a father. And he just uh, offers me to be for me like a father. And if I'm ready to accept that, he will receive me at, at his home and... Uh, so we went to Israel, and we met his family, we, went to, we were always ready to give me a voice. The test results were negative. But Father Yaakov, a pious man in his 80s, helped Binyamin resolve something that had tormented him since the concentration camps. And so uh, 
half a year later, I called him, I talked on telephone, and then I said I, I wish to come alone for half a week or a week to see you. You said you will always be ready to give me advice. And he said, of course you can come, my house is open. As a boy in the camps, Binyamin had done something that led to the death of another boy, and he felt guilty. Yaakov told him he didn't have to. In the moment when that happened, I was maybe four and a half or five years old. Um, I had the feeling that I'm doing something that's not right, and I thought uh, the real guilt and the responsibility starts in the moment when you are uh, conscious of it. But he explained uh, that the halakha says that the child cannot be responsible uh, for that uh, unless the child learned about the law. That was very important for my sort of inner peace. Binyamin calls Father Yaakov every Friday morning, and they visit one another four or five times a year. Maybe we'll keep in touch with Binyamin too. I hope we do. Binyamin is haunted by his past and the uncertainty surrounding who he is in a way that my family can never be. But since he left, I feel more haunted by the present. I keep thinking about what might have become of me if my great-grandmother hadn't left Riga when she did. If I'd been born at all, I might have ended up as an Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn, or an unemployed engineer in Tel Aviv, or a Moscow mafioso with a gold tooth. One of the luxuries of melting into the American mainstream is not having to think about where you came from and what might have happened if you'd stayed there. You can ignore your past most of the time, but every once in a while, it comes back to haunt you. Blake Eskin first wrote about Benjamin Wolkomirsky in the foreword. Wolkomirsky's book is called Fragments. It's published by Shock and Books. When we're older and full of cancer, it doesn't matter now. Come on, get happy Cause nothing lasts forever And I will always love you Don't forget me Please don't forget me Make it easy on me Just for a little while about you let me know you think about me too Heck 3 Ashes We can be haunted by others or we can be haunted by the way that we behaved ourselves This is a story of both kinds of haunting Several years ago, three weeks before his sister Lisa's wedding, David Sedaris got a phone call from his mom back home in Raleigh, North Carolina She had lung cancer She was a lifelong, unrepentant smoker my sister Amy was with me when my mother called. We passed the phone back and forth across my tiny New York kitchen and then spent the rest of the evening lying in bed, 
trying to convince each other that our mother would get better, but never quite believing it. I'd heard of people who had survived cancer, but most of them claimed to get through it with the aid of whole grains and spiritual publications that encouraged them to sit quietly in a lotus position. They envisioned their tumors and tried to reason with them. Our mother was not the type to greet the dawn or cook with oats and barley. She didn't reason, she threatened. And if that didn't work, she chose to ignore the problem. We couldn't picture her joining a support group or trotting through the mall in a warm-up suit. Sixty-two years old and none of us had ever seen her in a pair of slacks. I'm not certain why, but it seemed to me that a person needed a pair of pants in order to defeat cancer. Just as important, they needed a plan. They needed to accept the idea of a new and different future, free of crowded ashtrays and five-gallon jugs of wine and scotch. They needed to believe that such a life might be worth living. I didn't know that I'd be able to embrace such an unrewarding future, but I hoped that she could. If she'd had it her way, we would have never known about the cancer. It was our father's idea to tell us, and she had fought it, agreeing only when he threatened to tell us himself. Our mother worried that once we found out, we would treat her differently, delicately. We might feel obliged to compliment her cooking and laugh at all of her jokes, thinking always of the tumor she was trying so hard to forget. And that is exactly what we did. The knowledge of her illness forced everything into the spotlight and demanded that it be memorable. We were no longer calling our mother. Now we were picking up the telephone to call our mother with cancer. We realized that any conversation might be our last, and because of that, we wanted to say something important. But what could one say that hadn't already been printed on millions of greeting cards and helium balloons? I love you, I said at the end of one of our late-night phone calls. I am going to pretend that I didn't hear that, she said. I heard a match strike in the background, the tinkling of ice cubes in a raised glass, and then she hung up. I had never said such a thing to my mother, and if I had it to do over again, I would probably take it back. It was queer to say such a thing to someone unless you were trying to talk them out of money or into bed. Our mother had taught us this when we were no taller than pony kegs. I had known people who said such things to their parents, I love you, but it always translated to mean, I'd love getting off the phone with you. We gathered together for the wedding, which took place on a crisp, clear October afternoon. I took my mother's arm and led her to a bench beyond the range of the other guests. The thin mountain air made it difficult for her to breathe and she moved slowly, pausing every few moments. The families had taken a walk to a nearby glen and we sat in the shade, eating sausage biscuits and speaking to one another like well-mannered strangers. The sausage is good, she said. It's flavorful, but not too greasy. Not too greasy at all. Still, though, it isn't dry. Neither are the biscuits, she said. They're light and crisp, very buttery. Very. 
These are some very buttery biscuits. They're flaky, but not too flaky. Not too flaky at all, she said. We watched the path, awkwardly waiting for someone to release us from the torture of our stiff and meaningless conversation. I'd always been afraid of sick people, and so had my mother. I think it was their fortitude that frightened us. Sick people reminded us not of what we had, but of what we lacked. Everything we said sounded petty and insignificant. Our complaints paled in the face of theirs, and without our complaints, there was nothing to say. My mother and I had been fine over the telephone, but now, face to face, the rules had changed. If she were to complain, she risked being seen as a sick complainer, the worst kind of all. If I were to do it, I might come off sounding even more selfish than I actually was. This sudden turn of events had robbed us of our common language, leaving us to exchange the same innocuous pleasantries we'd always made fun of. I wanted to stop it, and so, I think, did she, but neither of us knew how. After the gifts had been opened, we returned to our rooms at the Econo Lodge, the reservations having been made by my father. We looked out the windows, past the freeway and into the distance, squinting at the charming hotels huddled at the base of other, finer mountains. This would be the last time our family was all together. It's so rare when one knowingly does something for the last time, the last time you take a bath, the last time you have sex or trim your toenails. If you knew you'd never do it again, it might be nice to really make a show of it. This would be it as far as my family was concerned. And it ticked me off that our final meeting would take place in such a sorry excuse for a hotel. What more do you want out of a hotel? He shouted, stepping out onto the patio in his underpants. It's clean, they've got a couple of snack machines in the lobby, the TV's working, it's near the interstate. Who cares if you don't like the damn wallpaper? You know what your problem is, don't you? We're spoiled, we shouted in unison. My parents retired to their room, and the rest of us hiked to a nearby cemetery a once-ideal spot that now afforded an excellent view of the newly built Pizza Hut. Over the years, our mother had repeatedly voiced her desire to be cremated. We would drive past a small forest fire or observe the pillars of smoke rising from a neighbor's chimney, and she would crush her cigarette, saying, That's what I want right there. Do whatever you like with the remains. Sprinkle them into the ashtrays of a fine hotel, Give them to smart-ass children for Christmas. Hand them over to the Catholics to rub into their foreheads. Just make sure I'm cremated. Oh, Sharon, my father would groan. You don't know what you want. He'd say it as though he himself had been cremated several times in the past, but had finally wised up and accepted burial as the only sensible option. We laid our econolodge bedspreads over the dewy grass of the cemetery, smoking joints and trying to imagine a life without our mother, 
If there was a heaven, we probably shouldn't expect to find her there. Neither did she deserve to roam the fiery tar pits of hell, surrounded for all eternity by the same heads who brought us strip malls and theme restaurants. There must exist some middle ground, a place where one was tortured on a daily basis but still allowed a few moments of pleasure, taken wherever they could find it. That place seemed to be Raleigh, North Carolina, so why the big fuss? Why couldn't she just stay where she was and not have cancer? Ever since arriving at the motor lodge, we'd gone back and forth from one room to another, holding secret meetings and exchanging private bits of information. We hoped that by preparing ourselves for the worst, we might be able to endure the inevitable with some degree of courage or grace. Anything we forecasted was puny compared to the future that awaited us. You can't brace yourself for famine if you've never known hunger. It is foolish even to try. The most you can do is eat up while you still can, stuffing yourself, shoveling it in with both hands and licking clean the plates, recalling every course in vivid detail. Our mother was back in her room and very much alive, probably watching a detective program on television. Maybe that was her light in the window, her figure stepping out into the patio to light a cigarette. We told ourselves she probably wanted to be left alone. That's how stoned we were. We'd think of this later, each in our own separate way. I myself tend to dwell on the stupidity of pacing a cemetery while she sat, frightened and alone, staring at the tip of her cigarette and envisioning herself, clearly now, in ashes. David Sedaris' story, Ashes, is from his book, Naked. His latest book is called Holidays on Ice. He was recorded by Time Warner Audiobooks. You look good in my dress Look at your friends to clean the mess You look good in my clothes I can feel you where the doctor goes My beautiful son My beautiful son My beautiful son My beautiful son Act 4, Ghost Story. Well, we figured we couldn't do a show about people who are haunted without at least one old-fashioned ghost story. This one is a very contemporary one. It's actually an excerpt from Heather Woodbury's amazing eight-hour solo stage play, Whatever. The play is this sprawling, epic story. Woodbury plays ten fully developed characters and over a hundred minor ones. We're just going to hear a tiny fragment of this thing here. Here is the setup. A character named Clove is at a rave party on a beach, goes out in the water, goes under, starts to drown. People think it's a suicide. Then... Somehow, she wakes up in a Brussels sprouts field. This is a few scenes later. Hannah, could you put Sable on the phone? Hannah, Sable, your big sister, Sable, give me Sable. <sighs> Children ag me to such excess at times. Sable? Yeah, it's Clove. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm all right. Are you in trouble? God, I'm sorry. 
What's that humming sound on the line? Oh, your parents are chanting. God, I'm so relieved my parents aren't Buddhists. Are they all agged and stuff about me drowning at the rave and getting arrested and like that? Ah, your parents are so overly righteous or something at times. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. Forget it. It's too dull. Never mind. Anyway, no, my parents are calm. They were all indignant that I talked to the state troopers and didn't go all silent and recite my rights and stuff, but they didn't get hectic about, don't take drugs like we did. LSD almost ruined our marriage. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, they were kind of non-typically all quiet. I think my mom is spaz that I'm at teen suicide risk or something. No, Sable, is this you? No, I was just being all excessive in the water under the moonlight. It's like the moon was making this crescent cookie shape, cutting cookies in the back of my head, even though I was looking the other way, and the crabs were talking to me. It doesn't matter. Never mind. It's too complex. I can't. Well, yeah, yeah, I was with that dude Skitter. No? Oh, yeah, Skeeter. Well, yeah, yeah. We were by the cave, by that dead sea lion or walrus, whatever. Do you think he's flaccid and weak, or do you think he's rad? Right on. I'm so relieved. Yeah, well, we got slithery. Yeah. That's when I went to the waves to wash his protein shake off my hands. My hands? Sable, I didn't like him that much. So, do you really want to hear what happened? You promise you won't think I'm all Juliet Lewis? All right. I go to the waves, and the ocean started talking or singing to me. It's like the ocean was this green spreading gown, and it was pulling me in it. And then these crabs were biting my toes. That's how they communicate. Yeah, they were telling me all these rad things. Oh, yeah, you should see my toes. They are wretchedly butchered. It's gruesome to excess. But anyway, the crabs were pulling my toes and teaching me how to dance this crazy turning pattern for the moon. And then I could live under the waves and give the ocean something back for us destroying it. Like me for the sea lion, a life for a life. I know. I thought you said you... Yeah. Isn't it raging? Yeah. So I guess I was far out on the rocks and the waves were slashing all about me. And I see this seahorse man crashing and raging way out in the middle of it. And I, Sable, girl dude, he was excessively real. Do you believe me? Rad. And then Skitter, oh yeah, yeah, I mean Skeeter was calling to me and I don't know what I answered, but I jumped in and the next thing I knew I was swirling around in the waves. And then I see this white, white dude and he's pushing the seahorse man back under the waves and he's pulling back the dress of the waves to keep it from going over my neck. And he floats across the ocean to me and he says, this is way f***ed. And he leads me down underwater over these underwater mountains and into this underwater valley where there's this underwater farm. But it turned out later, the state troopers told me that I had gotten in this cave and crawled over these rocks up a cliff and across the road to the Brussels sprouts farm where they arrested me. So this way pale dude leaves me there and Sable, this is fiendishly odd. Don't spaz. He goes, he's all, don't tell people you saw me. And I'm all, who are you anyway? Sable, promise not to tell anyone. Thou, right on. He's all, I'm Cobain, the friendly ghost. I'm being excessively real. This was totally realistic. I was all, whoa, Kurt.
I know. I know. We don't even like Nirvana. Well, In Utero is a good album. It is. Never mind. No, I mean never mind. Not never mind. Anyway, never mind. Yeah. Isn't it raging? Who's that? What in the devil? Who's there? What is it? Elliot? Is that you? You frightened? No, it's not Elliot, is it? But you are a ghost, aren't you? I thought you might have been my last husband, dear. Who are you? Coltrane? Coltrane, the friendly ghost? Well, I'm awfully glad you're friendly, dear, but you don't look a thing like Mr. Coltrane. I saw him play many, many times, you know, and I'd say you're awfully pale, even for a ghost, if you're John Colt. What, dear? What's that? Coben? Coben. Pet Coben. Kurt Cobain wanders around haunting various characters throughout Heather Woodbury's Whatever. The eight-hour version will be touring the United States in 1998. Her director, Dudley Saunders, has also produced an eight-hour radio play of the epic solo show from which this was excerpted. Well, our program was produced today by Nancy Updake and myself with Elise Spiegel and Julie Snyder, senior editor Paul Tuff, contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and consigliere Sarah Val. Production help from Alex Bloomberg and Rachel Howard. Special thanks today to Mary Zimmerman and Andrew White of the Looking Glass Theater Company. To buy a cassette of this program, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. 312-832-3380. Our email address, radio at well.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who says every week after our show... One's enough for me, baby. I'll never go through it again. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. I spoke into his eyes, I thought you died RI Public Radio International